Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Bickerty Library in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm Jonathan Eder, host of the podcast. We situate our discussion at the crossroads of spiritual quest and scholarly inquiry, which is very much at the heart of what we do at the library and making available documentation on a rich and diverse history that illuminates the relevance of Christian science in a wide variety of fields and aspects of human endeavor. One expression of this is the library's fellowship program, where academic and independent scholars and others have the opportunity to receive support from the library to research in our collections for a dedicated period of time on a project relevant to the content we hold. I'm very pleased to have one such scholar and past library fellow with me today for a discussion on American religion in World War II. So big welcome to you, Dr. Kurt Peeler. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be back. Dr. Peeler's book, A Religious History of the American GI in World War II, was recently published by University of Nebraska Press. It provides an extraordinary survey and examination of the role of religion in the American military, and to some extent, civilian experience in World War II. Dr. Peeler is director of the Institute of World War II and the Human Experience and associate professor of history at Florida State University. He received his doctorate from Rutgers University. This is big terrain that you're covering. Yes, uh, no, I, I, it, it was an interesting book because it was more narrow than my first book. That it started with my dissertation. I did Remembering War from the Revolution then to the present 1990s. I didn't do Native American conflict, but I did all the major yeah. wars. So that was a wide expanse. And I thought, well, this is a more narrow focus, but in ways was very broad because of the different issues and I had to deal with and examine. yeah. Well, it's a fascinating book, but I'm curious about this institute that you uh, lead, the Institute of World War II and the Human Experience, because for me at least, there is nothing that religion speaks to more than what is so deeply human in us. So I'm curious about the institute and where religion comes into play within the institute. Yeah, the institute, one of the things we try to promote scholarship on World War II, so we fund visiting lectureships, prominent scholars and up-and-coming scholars come and give uh, lectures and also engage in other ways with students. But actually, the first conference I did at Florida State, co-organized with John Corrigan of the Religion Department at FSU, was a conference on religion in World War II, very broadly cast, both national and international. Mm. Um, And I think Scholars have largely understudied the role of religion. I think we overstate the secularization of the 20th century. I think religion is really important. I was quite struck at what a marker World War II was in terms of the role of religion in in war, that if you, quote-unquote, follow the money, we didn't really actually spend significant sums on the promotion of the free exercise of religion in the armed forces until World War II, and that was a real surprise. Yeah, that's a, a very fascinating part of your book to look at President Franklin Roosevelt and his understanding and attention to the importance of supporting religion in in the armed forces. It's interesting how I've come to projects. I was doing this ill-fated project, which I abandoned because I would have spent the rest of my life doing the research, was the American response to Nazi Germany. And I started with files related to, quote-unquote, church relations. Mm. And there I, I was just fascinated by Roosevelt's embrace of religion as important to a liberal society, but also his belief in religious pluralism. Mm -hmm. 
that America is strengthened by embracing freedom of conscience. And as he put it, when he gave an address to the nation on behalf of the National Council of Christians and Jews, he said, we are people of many faiths. We have really disagreements, but all religions offer something to the national altar. Mm-hmm. And so at Rutgers in, in 1994, I was on a postdoc, and I, to be honest, was desperate for a job to keep my career going. Okay. And the class of 1942 got talked into doing an oral history project. Uh, Stephen Ambrose had played a critical role. He was in residence at the mm-hmm. time. He talked the class of 42 into funding an oral history project that was originally supposed to be two years and as soon will it be 30 years old, and in fact, is a very expansive oral history program. But I started interviewing um, members of the class of 42, and then I class of 49, and then different Rutgers classes, and also New Jersey College women. And this is before Tom Brokaw's book came out. Right. And so one of my distinct memories is meeting with the class of 42. They were both my research base, but also my funders. Mm-hmm. And I remember with the executive board, certain members were skeptical about this project because they thought, I didn't do anything important, and we know everything there is to be known about World War II. And then about two months into the interviewing, I said, not only has my career been saved, but they have given me this incredible intellectual gift. This is a gold mine. I can't believe more people aren't doing this. Mm-hmm. And then a few years later, Tom Brokaw's The Greatest Generation came out. And I think that was really important for spurring even more oral history. Early groups I interviewed from 1994 to 98, I'd got them at a good point. Many of them had just retired or were nearing retirement. They had long left the military. So a lot of them could speak really freely. But in terms of how war impacts people. So when you came here to the Mary Baker Eddy Library to look at our collections as they pertain to this question of American religion in World War II and religious participation and, and the support of religion for American service people, what did you find and how did the Christian science story sort of relate to the bigger picture? One of the things that became very important for the Christian science story as related to my book was the appointment of clergy. How does the armed services accommodate a religious faith that doesn't have an ordained clergy when that's central to how the military structures religious life? I thought the army was was fabulous. The chief of chaplains, William R. Arnold, on some women's issues, I, I'm a little more critical. But in many ways, Arnold, he's Vatican II before there's Vatican II. So he's a couple decades in advance of that famous Vatican Council. Yeah, I mean, Vatican II really was a fundamental change in the church, particularly its attitude towards other religion, that after Vatican II, the Catholic Church is much more open to ecumenicalism than it was pre-Vatican II. Arnold was determined that both Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Christian scientists would have chaplains and that mm-hmm. the army would, would accommodate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how to accommodate that, they turned to Christian science practitioners as the logical group. Mm-hmm. So how did he become chief of chaplains? He's appointed by the chief of staff, and he was the oldest serving chaplain by World War II. There were some Protestants had misgivings having a Catholic Monsignor as chief of chaplains. Many thought he would do undue favoritism, even more sinister, with part of Catholic power that was going to take over the world. Right. But I think Arnold had a lot of support from George Marshall, Army Chief of Staff. Arnold, uh, he's one of those people I would have loved to meet. He was the longest-serving Army chaplain. He had served in the Philippines in the early 1900s. He had served through World War One. He had served as a CCC chaplain, helping civilians who were in the war camps. He was ordained a priest, but he only briefly had been in a parish. He had largely served in the military, although he did have a stint with the circus. <laughs> he also 
came from a real working class background. He, he had a union card. His father was a cigar maker. He'd learned how to make cigars. He was a union man. And he was very mm-hmm. proud of that. He seemed like the chaplain who could counsel anyone, like regardless of faith. Where I'm critical of Arnold, but he's not unique, is the majority of Christian science practitioners in that era were women, mm-hmm. but only men could be chaplains. Right. Some Protestant chaplains for, say, denominations that are, had ordained women, they wrote to the Army and Navy and said, we'd like to serve. We'd like to serve wa- wax or waves. And both services said only men could be chaplains. Mm-hmm. With all the faiths, how do these faiths interact with, with men and women from other faiths? There were bigots in the military. There were anti-Semites. There were those with anti-Catholic sentiments. There were those who were critical of Christian science. But by and large, there was remarkable sort of effort to have mutual understanding. There was quite a bit that was learned by each other. I think one of the stories, one of the chaplains in training at Harvard in chaplain school says, you know, his roommate thought Christian science had funny, I forgot how he put it, but they thought we we, we blessed handkerchiefs. And he, you know, he disabused <laughs> that, that notion. And and I think it's not a perfect world. There is sectarian tension, but by and large, it's a story where people do get along in the best sense of the term. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting to me. Um, in your book, you indicated that to be a chaplain at that point as a Christian scientist, you needed to be a formally authorized uh, practitioner. That was confusing to me initially because that's not the case today. Yeah. Things have changed remarkably. And, lot and of so then I, I had to do a little bit of yes. backpedaling and, um, and, and then realize, okay, that what was necessary as a qualification then was to be a practitioner, which would have narrowed the field that you could draw from. Well, you mentioned this kind of bigotry that could exist, and it calls to mind this one quotation from the book that does involve a Christian scientist, and, and it reads as follows, quote, Other commanders displayed bigotry towards chaplains of certain faiths. Chaplain Willard Walter Jaynes's commander, a Roman Catholic lieutenant colonel, pressured him to request a transfer to another unit, citing the lack of Christian scientists available for him to serve. The lieutenant colonel asserted that a Christian scientist chaplain was not in a position to minister to other Protestant men in giving Holy Communion. Jaynes expressed reluctance to church officials to accept a transfer, since it would give credence to the allegation that he did not meet the spiritual needs of all Protestants. In fact, Jaynes maintained that he could and did offer Holy Communion. One of the things the story illustrates is you can have an official policy I mean, the Army is a big place, 15 million men and women, uh, and you you can get commanders out in the field who do things that are against regulation. The chief of chaplains and the chaplaincy viewed that any Protestant chaplain could serve other Protestants. And so this commander is going against established policy. You can have Army commanders that can make your life miserable. Mm -hmm. Um, But this commander was completely out of line on official policy. So it makes me want to ask, do you think that there was a perception among certain commanders that if you were religious, you wouldn't be as good a soldier or sailor? I, I think the bias was that religion was was good, that it would fortify okay. people, would sustain people. But there were commanders who had no use for religion. I think some of this was their own personal belief. Um, I want to read this quote that kind of is about a perception of the divine intervening in um, the experience of war. And in this case, it does involve a Christian scientist. But just to see how this story is reflective of how people thought the presence of God perhaps was manifested in war, in World War II. So it, it reads as follows, quote, Did God actively intervene in the fates of men and women facing danger? 
There were chaplains and GIs who answered this question affirmatively. One Christian Science Army Air Force chaplain in the China-Burma-India theater flew across the Himalayas in such a fierce storm that it knocked out the radio and so badly iced the ship's wing that the pilot told the crew to don parachutes and be ready to jump. The chaplain persuaded the pilots to continue flying and to place their complete trust in God. In the words of one biography written after the war, this chaplain worked harder than ever, and they arrived at their field with only five minutes' worth of gas left in the tank. Working harder than ever in that biography, I think, meant praying harder than ever, holding to prayerful truths harder than ever for that Christian science chaplain. So that's kind of a remarkable story. I, I, it just jumped out of the pages, and, and, and it's a question I really wondered. Did men and women really believe that the divine entered into the world? And, 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 of course, there's different theological interpretations of God acting in human affairs. One of the struggles I had in doing research for this book, because I poured over not only chaplains' records, but I didn't want it to be a history of the chaplains, and— Chaplains are great because they're really great observers. They're well-educated. Mm-hmm. They're both in the military, but they're not. So they often have this critical perspective. But I was desperate to find both chaplains and also average GIs reflecting on their own views of religion. And this chaplain sort of saying the divine really entered into this. I wanted to find more of that. Religion was really important to the American GI. The majority said even more than comradeship, prayer sustained them in the battlefield, mm. which yeah. I was stunned at. Because yeah. you know, everyone emphasizes band of brothers, but it's religion, mm-hmm. is, they say, is, is number one. Sort of on the, the flip side, when there was real tragedy and, and trauma faced by these participants in the war on the American side, how was that understood in, in religious terms? I think chaplains were very cognizant, and I also think the military was very cognizant that it was really important recovering of the war dead and trying to do as, as close as possible the rights of the different faiths was really important to GIs. When I realized war really traumatizes people was I did one of my early interviews at Rutgers, and this, this individual started crying. Mm. And what it really disabused me was that World War II was the good war. Like, it may have been a morally necessary war, but if you've seen a lot of combat and you saw a lot of trauma, there's nothing good about war. Right. But I remember I culturally absorbed World War II is the good war. How people deal with trauma, if I could figure out exactly why some are traumatized, clearly traumatized by the war, that's so obvious in an oral history, I even feel I have to back off because I'm not a psychiatrist. Mm. Whereas others, they've experienced incredible trauma and they've managed to cope mm-hmm. so well. There were those who really did believe the gospel, the resurrection. They really did believe the words of the Amida, you know, that God is faithful to those who sleep in the dust. The other discovery is there are atheists in foxholes because the chaplains will often talk about the atheists in the foxholes. One, right. one guy says, I encountered these guys and they, they either want a cigarette or they want to be written up for that medal. They, they have no use for me. Or there was a very thoughtful Marine. He was a graduate of Harvard, and he had been wounded, and he was, he was back in the States, and he's in this conference on religion and war, and he's saying, there are those of great faith in the military, but I've also seen some of the bravest men in battle have been atheists or agnostics, right. that it's not an automatic connection. I think it's very disillusioning for all faiths when a chaplain doesn't live up to expectations say, when a Roman Catholic priest has to be sent home because he can't cope with the battlefield because it, it raises questions. Oh, yeah. What, what is he preaching? Does he really believe this if he has to be sent home? 
When you were looking at the Christian Science Experience in our collections here, were there aspects of it that spoke to the question of healing, of comfort, that Christian Science in a very particular way brought to the, the theater of war? Christian scientists did seek out their practitioners, and both Christian scientists and the practitioners that served them, the chaplains that served them, did think that the divine was acting in the world. Probably the most disturbing story, I thought, in terms of sectarianism, though I, there's an element of I can see how this happened, that it was just the way the military did things, is when I interviewed Walter Denice at Rutgers as part of the Rutgers Oral History Project, he joins the Army, and where's the worst place to put a Christian scientist? I thought, put him in the medical corps. And he spoke at length about how awful this experience was. And then he gets transferred to the infantry. And the other th thing that Walter Nye's story really impressed me was, he said to me, even though he carried a rifle, he said, I never fired at the enemy. But he was decorated for valor because he would go out and r rescue the wounded. So he, wow. he was really a remarkable individual. And a New York Times writer wrote about him and several others from this town of Freehold. He was a fascinating person to interview. So I I will say that story was very present when I was going through the Christian science material, like how do we accommodate uh, something that's very important to Christian scientists, uh, their, their notions of healing and faith. Yeah. And Freehold is where? Freehold is in Freehold, New Jersey. Oh, okay. Uh, I believe the author's name is C-O-Y-N-E. Well, another quote from your book gives a variation on this question of engagement between a medical practitioner and a Christian scientist. In this case, a Christian science practitioner chaplain. And you write, quote, Herbert Reiki's Army Air Corps group commander deliberately had the Christian scientist chaplain share a hotel room with the squadron surgeon. The two developed a great rapport, talking late into the night. The unnamed surgeon is reported to have said to Reiki that he was the first chaplain in the Army to whom he had felt a personal connection. According to Reiki, this Surgeon described his concerns over the sanitary conditions of many squadron bases and said it was only, uh, and this is his quote, because of the grace of God that there had not been an epidemic there. And that's the end of his quote. In addition, Riki described how every day he was helping the group dentists give up the tobacco habit. End of your quote. To me, what this brings out is that even though there, there is a... Um, a different approach towards healing that might exist between Christian scientists and a surgeon in, the, in this case. The objective uh, is the same, thing. yes, yeah. yes. And this chaplain must have been remarkable. You know, you're having a surgeon fully embracing modern medicine right. in this era and, and a Christian scientist practitioner. Both seem to be really open and, yeah. and, and, and the engagement with ideas and values. This unnamed surgeon must have been a really remarkable, too, in terms of yeah. And, and I think that the military often says it's not a social laboratory, but it is. But and it is, and, and yeah. I also wonder why this rooming assignment occurred this way. Yeah. Uh, partly as they were officers, and they're also united in the fact they're both non-combatants. They don't carry arms. Uh, right. In chaplain school, both the Army and Navy deliberately would put as roommates a Protestant minister, a Catholic priest, and a rabbi together in the same room. Mm -hmm. And that led to some great friendships and dialogues. And so there are open-minded yeah. men and women in the faith. And it's a culture in terms of how religion is promoted to accept openness and pluralism. You do include in your book some examples of how Christian science healing occurred for GIs in World War II. Uh, here's one example that you give. 
Quote, Christensen's chaplains in their reports to Boston headquarters indicated a strong belief in the efficacy of church teachings. One chaplain based in Texas described how, after learning that a Christian scientist had collapsed on the drill field with a hemorrhage of the brain, he rushed to the base hospital to begin his work, aided by a civilian Christian science minister from Michigan. So grave was this soldier's condition that the Red Cross sent the lad's mother to his bedside. In the end, the soldier recovered, and this case was thought to demonstrate further proofs of God's law and that so-called medical laws regarding that condition have been annulled. It's interesting that that's part of the record, too. There's a real belief that this really matters. Those were wonderful stories. So what do you think from your research was the impact on religion of the war for those people who served, but also because it was this sort of contest between, in, in some people's minds, good and evil? One of the questions in my book, you know, how do we go from the 1920s where you have this extreme religious sectarianism. You know, I, I remember one of those great stories, you know, my uh, stepfather used to talk about, which left such an impression on me, because I, I think he told me when I was like in middle school, he says he remembers when the Klan tried to drive him out of this town in New Jersey because they were the first Catholic family. Mm. And he talked about not getting jobs because he was Catholic. And you go to the 1950s, Will Herberg talks about Protestant, Christian, and Jews, that it's the American way of life. And he's even worried that we're losing some distinctiveness of religious traditions. Mm. You know, Ike is sort of sometimes criticized. I want Americans to have a religion. I don't care which religion. Right. Um, yes. A lot of sectarianism falls away in the 50s in the best sense of the term. Neighborhoods become less segregated by religion. And World War II, I think, is really a part of that. Or one of the books that should come next is looking at these chaplains and what happened to them after 1945. The World War II generation really did increase religious understanding. It, it led to fascinating friendships across faiths and across ethnicities. Well, you were talking about the impact of the war on chaplains and then where that took them subsequently. Now, this is still during the war, but Herbert Rieke, whom I referenced before, he writes this piece for the Christian Science Sentinel, a weekly religious publication for the Christian Science Church, uh, it's titled The Great Offensive, published June 10th, 1944, around the time of D-Day. The point he's making in this is that World War II is, in fact, just one step in the ongoing mission to eradicate evil from the world. So he writes, quote, Over 25 years ago, the Allied nations joined in a war to stop and silence the claim that evil can express itself aggressively through military action. They united in spirit and effort and accomplished a great task. But after the armistice was signed, they allowed themselves to be lulled into a mesmeric dream that the war against evil was over. Had the peace-loving people continued to carry on the great offensive against error and injustice with the energy and devotion to a noble cause that they had manifested during the days of the military campaigns, we should undoubtedly not be faced with the necessity for again warring to end war. The war against evil will never be over until all error is destroyed in human consciousness. There can be no armistice in the great offensive against evil. I'm just curious in terms of his vision. He sees World War II within this larger, ultimate human destiny needing to face and overcome evil. He reflects one of the questions I was trying to get at. What motivates soldiers to fight? Yeah. This is a question the military historians ask, and they largely when they write about World War II, they say soldiers aren't ideologically motivated. There's a famous 
line in John Morton Bloom's Vivas for Victory. You know, they don't know what the Atlantic Charter is when they're asked. They don't really quite understand what the four freedoms are. But this particular article reflects that chaplains really did embrace a view that this is a war for values, for fundamental values, religious values, but also the chaplains, I think, by and large, they embrace the four freedoms. They embrace the Rooseveltian vision of freedom of speech, uh, freedom of, of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. If not all the details, but I was always struck by their writings, their sermons, the hymns they select. They are in part, and they're told not to do this, but they are indoctrinating soldiers. They are explaining to them why they fight. And I think in some of the most difficult cases, so for example, when you asked about death and the loss, funerals are often a case where they are citing the greater values we're fighting for. When you read letters of condolences. They're drawing on spiritual words of comfort, but they're also citing the four freedoms. You know, your 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 son or your father died in defense of the four freedoms, which are really important. Chaplains, and along with women, are the true volunteers in World War II. It's a little complicated for Christian scientists because there's not an ordained clergy, but most clergy in America are not subject to the drafts. The only way the Army and Navy can get chaplains, they have to volunteer. So they are really true believers in the cause. They really do believe this is a struggle against evil. What really endeared me about Franklin Roosevelt, he really embraced religious pluralism, really helped reshape American society, but he also fully understood the evil of the, of the Nazi regime, that, yeah. that it was not just a threat to American national security, but also that if the Nazis had won, what that would mean to, to human civilization and what it would mean to religion. I mean, he, yeah. he uses a piece of British propaganda just before we enter the war, that it's handed to him by the British, this quote-unquote fake intelligence source that Roosevelt cites it in his address. I've been handed this document, I've received it, that the Nazis are out to destroy all religion. Well, in point of fact, if you read Gerhard Weinberg's scholarship on World War II, that's what the Nazis in the long run aim to do, or at least a large faction of the yeah. Nazi party. And Weinberg always makes the point that in Albert's fears, the new German communities that were going to arise in Europe when they won the war— he said, there is no place in those model cities for religious structures. Mm -hmm. So I think chaplains really understood, and even a lot of GIs understood religion in the war. We often say that they're viewed as just fighting for comradeship. They're not flag wavers. They're not talking about the four freedoms. But when GIs were surveyed in 1942, they were asked the question, what would happen if the Nazis win the war? They said it wouldn't be good for religion and it wouldn't be good for particularly religious minorities, yeah. i.e. the Jews. And, and I was stunned by those numbers, that they yeah. were very aware of that. They're echoing Franklin Roosevelt almost verbatim. And then I was even more stunned, and this was 1942, and the military is really concerned about combat motivation, particularly aimed at the Germans. Only a minority thought we should have entered the war before Pearl Harbor to save German Jewry. But a slight majority said, and I couldn't believe this, when you, you read all these accounts about lack of ideology, a slight majority said, we should have entered this war to protect European minorities outside of Germany. Mm. And that showed that there was a lot more awareness of what was at stake at this war. For example, there was a lot more awareness of not the full extent of the Holocaust, because a lot of that was kept secret by the Germans, but GIs knew that the Nazis were not good for the Jews. Yeah. And they knew that the Nazis were not good for the Catholic Church. Um, and for religion in general. This has been really fascinating to engage in this conversation and to understand just how fertile an area for research it is to explore religious meaning in World War II for the American GI. Uh, and I would just have to say, in World War II, I feel, I mean, we've often in some ways scratched the surface. 
Well, thank you so much, Kurt. Thank you very much. <laughs> and um, welcome back to the Mary Yeah, I'm really, gl- I'm really glad to be back, and I'm glad to be back in Boston. Oh, that's uh, great. Well, thanks so much. I, I hope Christian scientists have appreciation for their chaplains that serve in wartime because they're really remarkable. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seekers and Scholars with guest Dr. Kurt Peeler, a former Mary Baker Eddy Library fellow and author of the recently published A Religious History of the American GI in World War II. If you would like to learn more about the library's fellowship program, please go to our website and look for the tab for fellows under the tab for research found along the top of the home page. We look forward to having you join us for future episodes. One upcoming will involve exploring what our collections offer for research into the question of the intersection of creative and spiritual quest. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2022.